The process of applied functional science is the transformation of the notion into the motion. From Great Institute, I'm Barb, and this is the Great Institute Podcast. Great Institute is internationally acclaimed for its innovation, development, mastery, and delivery of applied functional science. AFS is based on scientific truth, not theory, on how the human body moves in all three planes. AFS allows movement professionals like you to apply the best, most effective, and most efficient movements to any individual based on specific needs and goals. For 40 years, through training, education, and mentorship, Great Institute has equipped over 150,000 professionals with comprehensive knowledge in the principles of applied functional science. Whether you're a physical therapist, personal trainer, athletic trainer, chiropractor, strength and conditioning coach, coach, physician, physiotherapist, occupational therapist, osteopath, physical therapy assistant, or kinesiologist, our goal is to help you become the go-to movement professional. The Gray Institute podcast is questions-based. You send in your questions and we discuss them. We join Gary as he discusses optimal body movement and function for our clients. If you're listening and have a question, email them to info at grayinstitute.com. From Gray Institute, I'm Gary Gray, and this is the Gray Institute podcast. And we have something, I believe, really special today. In fact, I'm going to call it the Daily Double. The Daily Double is because I got two questions from a movement professional that immediately put me back on my heels. One brought a big piece of humble pie into my heart and mind, and the other one brought a huge chunk of passion into my heart and mind. And hopefully I'll be able to explain that as we go through our podcast today and just simply enhance our own lives in order that we can enhance the lives of others. Let's start with question number one. And again, this is humble pie question for me, and I'll explain why that is. Both questions come from Dr. Brian Rafool. He's a chiropractor, and he wrote us two amazing questions that I immediately said, I got to answer these right now. I can't keep these on a back shelf. The first one is, what is your opinion about the trend in rehab that starts with intervention in developmental positions? Their argument seems to be that these foundational movement patterns must be restored before functional training should be attempted. For example, if you can't adequately roll from prone to supine, should we be on our feet driving the transverse plane in our exercises? Now, through that entire question, I got a a grin on my face, mostly because most of my life, I think I got this wrong. Let me see if I can go back and tell you why I had to have humble pie. When I began to start to understand function, and even now I don't fully understand it, but as what they would call a young whippersnapper, uh, I realized that things were entirely different when you were prone or supine or sideline versus standing up. Joints function different, muscles function different, proprioceptors function different, all of our synergies were different. Everything we did was different. In fact, almost different to the point where in lying down, as we know, I can contract the hamstring and it'll bend the knee, but standing, 
the hamstring actually extends the knee and also works on rotation and also the frontal plane. And so early on, if somebody would have asked me, do you do much on-ground training? I would say absolutely not. Uh, I would say I think it's a waste of time. I think uh, once the body develops its on-ground abilities and at about 11, 12, 13 months decides it wants to get up on the feet and go, we should spend 99.9% of our time if the patient, if the athlete, is, if the client is able to, developing what should happen when we're on our feet simply because of all the differences between what happens uh, perpendicular to gravity and what happens parallel to gravity. Perpendicular is obviously on ground. Parallel to gravity is upright standing. And I would just flippantly say that because in my small mind, that made sense to me. If you want to get better at doing something upright, you might as well start upright, you might as well train upright, you might as well assess upright, you might as well progress upright, and you might as well do everything upright. Uh, except uh, my life changed when I had the privilege of being asked to train our U.S. Navy SEALs. And as a part of that, this is a whole nother podcast, I had the unique privilege of actually training with the U.S. Navy SEALs for a week so I could understand what a SEAL did. I explained that I don't do very good at understanding developmental programs for different activities unless I know that activity, and therefore, I really didn't understand what a SEAL did, and so I needed to train as a SEAL. most challenging week of my life, most humbling week of my life, but probably the most rewarding week of my life because we got the contract and for the next year I had the privilege and the honor and definitely the um, uh, opportunity to work with our young men who are SEALs and assess them in a different way and train them in a different way so they could uh, go about their business more effectively, more efficiently. Obviously, one of the things we know a SEAL does is a lot of on-ground stuff. Uh, My very first opportunity out on the field with the SEALs uh, as active gunfire was going over my head, I realized I needed to get on the ground. And if I was going to go somewhere, I needed to move when I was on the ground. And even then, I found out I wasn't very proficient. But I then basically kind of justified in my mind that, yeah, if you're going to function on the ground, we should train you on the ground. If you're going to function in the water, we're going to train you in the water. However, if you're going to function upright, we're going to function, we're going to train you upright. Except as we had an opportunity during that year to work with these gentlemen, we found that a lot of the upright movement assessments and training were enhanced by what they did on the ground, which made me a liar. Uh, I don't know so much of a liar, just exposed more of my ignorance. And by that I mean, we would do a lot of functional testing, and then we would do a lot of training upright, and then reassessed, and they would get a certain uh, level of enhancement of their abilities. But I started to notice that sometimes when we came from on-ground training, where we did a lot of things, we're rolling and driving with our arms and our legs, obviously matrices that we would call on-ground matrices, that when the athlete, when the SEAL got up, they literally moved better in that upright function, which immediately I think I 
subconsciously and even consciously denied, but I couldn't deny it because it was right there in front of me. And realize that there's a lot of truth to this great question of intervention in developmental positions and sequences that potentially need to be done before we even do upright function. Now, I'm going to answer the question, but I'd like to come back and maybe give some whys to the answer. I don't think for a lot of people we have to always go back and visit kind of the developmental sequence. I think there are a lot of people that have the ability that have, need some upright ability to move better, to create a new path of least resistance, to demonstrate more effective and efficiency in their movement patterns. I think they can get it from starting upright, going through what we call functional patterning, and then tweaking those patterns and then enhancing their ability. Let's say somebody who just wants to run better. I also believe there are some people that would benefit from going back to what I call ground zero of their movement development. Um, the way I started describing that, and I'm, I'm not sure if it's a good description, but it's how I describe it is, I think what we learn in the first 11, 12, 13 months of our life is what we call the hard drive. And then I think everything else build upon the ability now to walk and everything that emanates from that is what we'd call software. And sometimes, as we know, the software in our computer is not working really well. And we can tweak the software and sometimes we can get it better. Uh, we can just go to the level of the software and enhance what the software is doing. And in this case, we can move better. But in some cases, we have to go right down to the hard drive and start on the hard drive. We have to take away all the software, gotta go down to the hard drive and start from there. And I believe with some of us, and I think potentially the some of us, those of us who are getting older, potentially need to revisit our hard drive more often than we think. Again, totally uh, opposite of what I uh, exposed upon um, when uh, I first kind of got started in this, in this gig, so to speak. When we take a look at the developmental sequencing uh, versus getting up and going, it quickly reminded me of physical therapy school. In physical therapy school, I learned a number of methods to rehab people who had neurological disorders, specifically strokes. Interestingly enough, I quickly realized that the neural developmental approach to the human body applied to not only people with obvious neurological problems, such as a stroke, or cerebral palsy, or multiple sclerosis, or Parkinson's, but it really applied to everybody. And I remember one um, process that I studied that was taught to me was called the Bobath approach. And it was named after Berta and Carl Bobath um, that basically said exactly what the question alludes to, that you need to go through all the neural developmental sequencing before you would literally have somebody stand up and then create the reactions that this upright function would create via ground, ground reaction force, mass and momentum, and the synergies of the muscles. So I can remember with my first stroke patient trying to remember what those were and kind of went through them to see were they meeting every one of the criteria? Could they, you know, first of all, do prone head lifting, which we want to do at about one to two months. And then could they show me fairly good head control, which 
in an infant, we want that at about four months. Uh, can they kind of get on prone on elbows and sway back and forth? And of course, we would do that in 3D, which we want our children to be able to do at about four months. And then could they be prone on extended arms? Can they kind of push their arms back? And we'd expect that at six months. But again, I have a 65-year-old stroke patient that I'm saying, can you reach these milestones? Can you roll sideline? And again, we expect the rolling with infants to be at about one or two months. Could you roll sideline to prone? Normally we'd have that at four to five months, but that's after rolling sideline. And then obviously the tough one, rolling prone to supine, should be at about four to five months. And then the big kahuna going from supine, now doing, getting that anchor, anterior core engaged and going to prone uh, at six to eight months. So Bobath would say, I want all that to happen before you even start anything that you'd be crawling on your belly uh, or creeping, which again, creeping is the belly off the ground, and this occurs approximately eight to nine months. And therefore, before you'd even allow this person to try to sit independently and create reactions, again, in our mind's eye in the sagittal frontal and transverse plane while sitting, all these milestones had to be reached. And then, of course, the sitting had to be proficient before then we could actually start upright function where we'd actually come up uh, on our feet and develop that neurodevelopmental sequencing up on our feet. I also studied somebody by the name of Brunstrom. Now Brunstrom was somebody that disagreed a lot with Bobath because Brunstrom approach, in essence, was understanding that movements are the kind of the result of uh, the synergy of different muscle groups reacting together relative to gravity, ground reaction force, and mass and momentum. So Brunstrom wouldn't spend a lot of time on the table. Brunstrom would immediately get you up and start working on body slants and different synergies in order to accomplish what you wanted to accomplish. So if you had some flaccidity, in other words, the muscles weren't working really well in one part of the body, how would you create a reaction, an upright function to facilitate that muscle? Then obviously if we got to spasticity, then how would we actually use that synergy, either that flexor synergy or extensor synergy, that spasticity, to facilitate the ultimate movement that we knew our patient wanted. And then how then do we begin to really inhibit based on that upright function spasticity? And then how would we ultimately get them to function as well as they could? So on one hand, we had somebody that says, boy, don't even dream about getting them upright and trying to get them to react the way they normally would react. And then we have somebody else that says, no, get them up and get them going. Uh, don't waste the time. And so that kind of always kind of hit me because I think that's part of this question. And the answer that Dr. Dave Tabir would always say is kind of depends. Like some people, especially in upright function, if they're not getting rid of a pain or they're not improving or they're not getting to where they want to go, I quickly will ask the question, well, I wonder what their hard drive looks like. And I'll take them down and I'll take them through the, what I call the uh, Gray Institute neuromusculoskeletal uh, sequencing uh, and just to see how they do. Now, it's very important to understand that this sequencing is movement and not static movement. Uh, we develop on ground by moving, not by statically splinting or planking. So I understand this idea of planking and trying to create stability, but that's not how we develop. Uh, we actually develop by when we're in a posture, moving and swaying 
and getting input into the body so the proprioceptors become developed. And so when they're asked to do something, they have an idea what in the world they're supposed to do, who they're supposed to talk to, what muscles that we want them to engage in order to uh, facilitate the normalized movement. So we have a situation where the real question is, you know, do we, do we need to do this with everybody? And I don't think, I think the answer is no. However, I would answer this. I think we probably need to do it more often than at least I used to think so. I used to think we never used to do it, but I think it's a good thing to do. That's why at Grand Institute, we actually developed a 3D maps for on-ground function. As you know, 3D maps, an upright function, takes us through all three planes of motion, takes us through all 66 joint motions that need to be assessed in six movement patterns. Very logically, very strategically done. We also have 3D maps for on-ground function. In other words, if you're going to evaluate somebody on the ground, you can certainly evaluate whether or not they can be prone and prone on elbows, prone on extended elbows, if they can be sideline, if they can roll, uh, and then ultimately roll from their back until their stomach, and then can they get on all fours, can they crawl, can they creep? Uh, we can see that, but we still, if the answer is, well, I'm not sure how well they do, the answer is, I wonder, wh wonder why. That's the beauty of 3D map standing. We can assess somebody and go, I wonder why they can't do it better. Well, the answer has to be, well, motion comes from those 66, movement comes from those 66 motions. So therefore I have to have the six movements of 3D maps to facilitate that. We have the matrix movements of on ground function that we do that uses the same drivers, hand drivers, feet drivers, and eye drivers, and pelvic drivers in order to facilitate that. So we'll use that as a quick assessment sometimes, thinking maybe I'm missing something here. And of course, most of my life, I was definitely missing something. So the ultimate answer to the question is, wow, great question. Uh, and again, I don't think we have to go with everybody through starting almost you know, with a sucking reflex right after birth, all the way to what they ultimately wanna do and go through that whole neurodevelopmental sequence. But I do believe we have to revisit it and see if there might be chunks that are missing from the hard drive. And if so, I do think we have to create environments where we get those reactions to happen. Again, it's not static, it's very dynamic. It's very three-dimensional. And then compare how they do then upright with the ultimate function that they might wanna be able to do better upright. So it's, it's exciting because what's exciting to me is I was wrong uh, for a number of years. Uh, I just got done doing an interview with somebody and I had to admit to them I've been wrong 95% of my time. But the beauty of being wrong is you have a choice. You can stay wrong and protect your ego or you can admit that you're wrong and learn more. Hopefully part your ego part-time at the door, which is tough to do, and ultimately come up with better strategies based on real truth, our understanding of the true truth, in order to come up with techniques that ultimately benefit the patients and clients and athletes, and that's what it's all about. So I really believe uh, being able to, first of all, ask the question shows uh, that uh, Brian has a great idea of what's going on and some of the strategies out there, and utilizing the strategy of intervention with uh, neural developmental sequencing positions and motions, I think is very intelligent. I don't think it has to be done on everybody. I think it a lot depends upon 
do we feel there's more of a neurological underlying to the problem? Um, I used to say that with scoliosis, I would, uh, treatment, I would do it in three planes of motion. Uh, I obviously would do it using gravity ground reaction force. I would do it subconsciously. But because we don't know what causes scoliosis, and part of it could be neurological uh, and obviously orthopedic and myofascial, that knowing a component of is neurological, I think getting the person on the ground through some developmental sequences, facilitating the exact reaction that we want to to treat and improve the scoliotic curve would be of great wisdom. So in that case, I think it's a it's a, actually a great idea. Uh, so I just want to again uh, um, thank Brian for bringing this up, uh, allowing me right kind of in the Thanksgiving season to eat another big chunk of humble pie, uh, which in reality tastes pretty good if you take advantage of chewing on it for a while. And uh, realizing where my ignorance was and hopefully uh, taking advantage of others, other people's knowledge and understanding, and especially the gift that the U.S. Navy SEALs gave me to understand that uh, uh, on-ground function can enhance uh, upright function, and upright function, I believe, can enhance on-ground function. And uh, the wise person would say, I'm, I'm going to actually do both uh, and integrate it appropriately. I would add to that that I do try to, try to end most of my training to teach the proprioceptors exactly what I want them to do. So let's say I'm training a golfer and I am doing some on-ground neurodevelopmental sequencing. I will still spend the latter part of the treatment session, the training session, the performance session in upright function telling the proprioceptors, here's what I want you to understand before you leave here, um, without, as opposed to leaving them right after the person got off doing their on-ground training. So I hope you uh, enjoyed that as much as I uh, enjoyed uh, uh, kind of blabbing about it. But uh, again, it's near and dear to my heart, and uh, it's, I think it's near and dear to my heart just because uh, uh, it's been a blessing for me to learn that. Are you looking to reconcile differences and inconsistencies in your movement education? Do you desire to know more about how the body truly functions, how it truly moves? Are you treating and training causes or just the compensations? Do you want to be able to treat or train any and every patient or client effectively? Are you looking to rejuvenate your career, enhancing your passion and purpose? Do you want to share an experience with other passionate movement professionals? If you answered yes to any of these questions, maybe you should explore GIFT, Gray Institute for Functional Transformation. It could transform your career and transform your patients' and clients' lives. GIFT provides certification and functional manual reaction as part of the 40-week mentorship program, as well as being credentialed and recognized as a Fellow of Applied Functional Science. And FAFS has the knowledge, analytical ability, and hands-on manual skills necessary for the application and integration of the core content of the GIFT curriculum thus strategically designating you as a member of a select group of practitioners synonymous with the highest standard of care in the functional analysis of human movement. GIFT is designed for all movement professionals, including but not limited to physical therapists, personal trainers, athletic trainers, strength coaches, occupational therapists, kinesiologists, chiropractors, medical physicians, physical therapy assistants, and occupational therapy assistants. Are you ready to invest in yourself and your career in order to better invest in your patients, clients, and athletes? Check out GIFT at the Gray Institute website at www.grayinstitute.com and click on Mentorship at the top. 
Doug Gray is the president of Gray Institute and the director of GIFT. Doug has a unique history with the movement industry as he is the youngest son of Dr. Gary Gray. His experiences and expertise have allowed him to enjoy multiple roles at Gray Institute. His world lights up when there is mention of his wife, Valerie, his son, Zion Wynn, or his daughter, Lawson. Let's join Doug as he talks about continuing education. So on behalf of Gray Institute, uh, this is Doug Gray, and I just want to thank everybody for your listening ear in this podcast. Um, and similar to the podcast in the past, I got another special treat uh, for, for you listeners out there. Um, I have a gentleman on the, na- on the line. His name is Shannon Tislin. And uh, full disclosure, he's a friend. He's a colleague. He's a business owner. He's a physical therapist. He's kind of a jack of all trades and a master of all of them. And uh, what I want to do is kind of pick his brain here on this segment of the podcast and allow him to just drop some knowledge on all of us so that we can continue to learn knowing that our journey of education never ends. So uh, Shannon, on behalf of the listeners, on behalf of Gray Institute, I really appreciate you taking the time to allow me to interview on this segment of the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm uh, excited to have a little conversation with you and uh, just very excited to be here as well. So thank you. Well, great. Well, uh, you know, just doing the scouting report on you, I, I know uh, enough about you to be dangerous, but uh, of course, we always want to take a peek at websites and um, kind of see the history of the person and the history of the uh, business. And so you hail from experience momentum. And uh, I know you got started uh, way back in the day in the early 2000s with this amazing company, and you've uh, significantly grown it from there. Uh, from an impact standpoint, from an employee standpoint, uh, standpoint, and of course, from your reach with just the patients and clients you serve. And so uh, for our listeners, uh, Experience Momentum is an amazing uh, business and company that uh, features physical therapy, massage therapy, nutrition, fitness, CrossFit, um, just anything that deals with the body and how it truly needs and wants to move. You can find it under the umbrella of Experience Momentum. And so, uh, Shannon, just uh, based on your history, tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself, a little bit more about the company, and then uh, I have a specific question that I want to follow up with based on a quote that you feature on your website. So for now, just tell us more about you and uh, Experience Momentum, please. Yeah. <clears throat> no, absolutely. Well, uh, yes, I'm out here in Seattle, and uh, I moved out here in 1999, 20 years ago, after finishing my uh schooling education from uh, Des Moines University in Iowa, where I grew up. And uh, yeah, it's been a journey, kind of reflecting back in a nutshell. Uh, started out here and uh, couldn't really find a job when I moved out here, so I started uh, as a personal trainer and uh, did that for a while and uh, ended up getting a job with a traveling physical therapy company, became a PT at an orthopedic clinic, and, uh, you know, I, I became slightly disenchanted with the profession of physical therapy. And part of that was uh, just, are we looking at the whole person? Are we treating the whole person? Or am I just treating this knee? And then kind of digging a little deeper. Why do some people get better and some people don't when you're kind of doing the same treatment? And, uh just really had me posing, what, what am I doing, where am I going? And uh, I was personally going through some development stuff, taking a look at who am I, 
why am I here? What's my purpose? And along this journey, uh, started a life coaching company that was experienced momentum. And I did that on evenings and weekends, all while doing the full-time physical therapy and uh, finally decided uh, with my wife, Kelly, like, hey, we need to make a jump here and why don't we turn this into a brick and mortar and uh, combine the two. And so we started Experience Momentum uh, out of a brick and mortar in 2007 and uh, started with the two of us and uh, we've slowly grown, expanded services, as you mentioned earlier, and we now have two locations out here in Seattle and uh, almost 100 team members, which, you know, sometimes I think, how did this happen? I didn't... uh, get in this to be a business owner. I got into this to help people and uh, it's been a fun journey. So that's kind of where we are. So Experience Momentum is now a team of almost 100 from uh, physical therapists to massage therapists, personal trainers, registered dietitians, uh, yoga instructors, CrossFit coaches, boot camp coaches, um, the whole array. So here we are. Wow. Well, it's been quite a journey, and uh, I think uh, just the growth that you've experienced, of course, knowing you and your wife, uh, Kelly, that just um, it's I don't think it's a surprise to people that know you that you're that successful because you have the ability of meeting people where they're at, um, inspiring them to be better, and uh, allowing other people to join in that amazing journey. And, you know, just looking at, I think, uh, what separates uh, you and, and a lot of other people that are practicing applied functional science, as you meant, made mention earlier that you really try to, um, you know, center your care at the individual. Um, and I think that that's probably, of course, a game changer that we can use, you know, some existing protocols. But as you mentioned, some people get better, some people get uh, worse, others might stay the same. And really, how can we meet that individual where he or she is at and uh, based on their successes, grow those successes to ultimately uh, enhance their life? And you have an amazing quote on your website, um, and it says, create a life that inspires you. Uh, what is your 30-second elevator pitch to the explanation of that quote? Yeah, uh, we need to wake up. A lot of times we get busy and uh, life happens, the kids, the work, the day-to-day grind, and it's just taking a pause to pivot and ask, uh, what do I really want? And can I make uh, put an intention to go beyond whatever boundaries I have in my life. And at the end of the day, let's let's stop sleepwalking and wake up to our true potential. Well, I think we could probably just stop the podcast right there and have more gold than we need. Um, but that is uh, not only a powerful quote, but um, just the intentional learning by you and your company, of course, uh, tremendously validates that statement. And uh, I think is a very much a key to your success. Um, for the listeners, you know, I got to meet uh, Shannon and his wife uh, many years ago as they both took our gift program in 2010. And it always begs the question, you know, Shannon, why did you and your wife decide to take that program back in 2010? Oh, gosh, I love reminiscing on this. So uh, even before 2010, uh, my wife, Kelly, she was a massage therapist and uh, we started the business together. Um, 
we decided we need to get out of the Pacific Northwest and can we take a class and have a little time off as well? And we did a chain reaction course in 2009 in Arizona. And uh, that came from a recommendation of a gift fellow. And I was like, what is this gift thing? And he's like, well, why don't you take a chain reaction course, get introduced to Gary, get introduced to the, the concepts, the philosophies. So we decided, great, we're going to Arizona to get some sun and do this chain reaction thing. And when we got there, it was, we were just completely enthralled with uh, the chain reaction and what it was. It just made sense looking at the human body. Um, I think what resonated with me was Gary, uh, his philosophy on we have this opportunity to work on people's physical well-being, but it's really allow the physical is allowing us to work on their their spiritual, emotional, mental needs, and that just we both you know. We got that, and it's like that's in alignment with who we are. And uh, oh, by the way, this chain reaction stuff is is kind of foundational. <laughs> we need to get into the next gift program as soon as we can. So we registered for the 2010 uh, gift program. After that, oh well, yeah, it's, it's it seems like yesterday, but uh, when you kind of look back and know that that was you know nine years ago, it's uh, it's kind of baffling and. Um, you know, it's just one of those uh, programs that you're very aware of that uh, really the word of mouth marketing is the most powerful um, for, with how people understand uh, what the program entails and then takes that leap to say, that's what I want from my professional and personal growth. And so from a uh, professional and or personal standpoint, um, what did you get out of the program, out of that 40 weeks? Oh, man, uh, Doug, it, it was it was a game changer. You know, as a clinician, my toolbox just became exponentially bigger because you look at the body through a different lens and it gives you more opportunity to not only connect with your client, but to give them what they need. If they're a golfer, if they're a baseball player, if they're a gardener, if it doesn't matter who they are, what they're, what they're doing. Like you get to understand the principles of human movement and how it's all connected and what's going on at the, what personally, you know, we use the plantar fascia and it's like, we work on the plantar fascia and we work on the foot and Oh, by the way, what's going on at their hip and are they extending through their hip? Uh, or they have an early heel rise, a shortened hip extension, and oh, why is that happening? Oh, maybe something's going on at their thoracic spine. So your treatment, how you treated before, it just opens your, your, your eyes to what else is possible. And from a clinician standpoint, my treatments have improved exponentially over the years. And it just keeps getting better because you keep looking and seeing new things through this lens. So professionally as a clinician, I am a way better clinician because of gift. Um, and I'm able to marry what I'm already doing with the principles, strategies, and techniques that gift provides. Um, so that'd be one thing. If I'm going now as putting on my business owner hat, uh, we have a more connected team. And I, 
I believe since we went through, we've had at least one gift fellow almost every year since 2010. And some years we've had a couple or a handful. Um, that gives us a common bond, a common way, common language, common way to collaborate with each other. And I feel like it's built a closer team um, and a team that is focused on our client and our results. And that has been priceless. I mean, that in and of itself has just been amazing. And then I would say, on top of that, uh, GIFT has been just a huge resource center. I can reach out to a network of peers anywhere across the country, across the world for that matter, uh, if something's going on and reach out to folks. Um, and I have, I've collaborated a lot with GIFT, GIFT fellows all over the country, uh, you know, call someone up, I say, hey, I have this, this problem. Can I come down to your facility in Arizona or California? Can we meet up for a day? And gift fellows are just so gracious, absolutely. Um, we've had folks out in the gifts community say, hey, I have someone moving out to Seattle. Uh, I think they'd be a good, good fit for your company. Would you mind uh, giving them an interview? And we've actually hired a couple people from referrals so uh, that's always, it's just huge. And uh, so, yeah, the gift community itself has been, from a professional standpoint, um, very good for our business. From a personal standpoint, I mean, I had the opportunity to go through gift with my wife, which I realized was, you know, it was a dream come true. And still to this day, uh, you know, we talk about that experience. Uh, my wife has really... Uh, taken to some of Gary isms and uh, she'll be like, Oh man, my back is whopper jawed today. Or, Oh, my front butt is this. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, that's a language that, uh, unless you're a gift fellow, it's, it's hard to put in context, but get out there, do gift and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Oh, well, I appreciate those kind words. I mean, it's, um, it, it, I would be remiss to, to not take this opportunity to thank you and uh, Kelly and your team, but um, thank you specifically for facilitating an environment where your employees can go through GIFT. Um, as you mentioned, that there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of pieces to the program. You know, the content piece is huge. Um, the confidence piece as a practitioner is huge, but the community piece might be the biggest piece of all. Um, and it's a community piece of existing gift fellows. You know, we have well over a thousand people at this point in time in that community that creates a, a very powerful network, uh, but just the community within one's own practice that um, a lot of experiences, whether we go to a concert or whether we read a book or whether we do something and someone asks how it was, some of the best experiences are the ones that we say, I really can't put it into words, but you just need to try it. You need to do it, and you're going to understand uh, <laughs> what I mean by that. And we get a lot of that type of feedback. So I really appreciate uh, your ongoing support, um, but I, I ultimately know it's kind of a two-way street that um, you're sending people, and hopefully we're educating them in the right way. But it's really everybody growing together to not only up the profession, but up our abilities as pro professionals and practitioners in order to best serve that individual. And uh, you mentioned earlier kind of a, a very huge pearl of wisdom um, that I hope the listeners picked up on that you used uh, an example of the plantar fascia and plantar fasciitis. And 
you didn't really talk about, you know, the bottom of the foot. You said, you know, that early heel rise. I wonder if there's any ankle dorsiflexion issues. You talked about a lack of hip extension, and then you connected it all the way up to the thoracic spine that, you know, that really the causes are different than a lot of times the compensations or the dysfunctions or the symptoms. And, you know, just looking at plantar fasciitis from a, a global standpoint and understanding the connection, the chain reaction of that ankle, that hip, the thoracic spine is a huge pearl of wisdom. So I'm going to put you on the spot here because I need you to continue to drop some knowledge on me and our listeners. But what is another big pearl of applied functional science that you could share with us? Yeah, no, and I think that's absolutely the beautiful thing is just looking at I, I feel like as uh, as a clinician, we maybe are quick to jump to blame something. Oh, it's my 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 biceps femoris, my hamstring that's causing my uh, knee pain, or it is oh my supraspinatus is causing my shoulder pain. And I think the, the big pearl is it all works together. And how can we take a step back? And maybe not blame a muscle, but look at the global motion and then dial in on a tissue or tissues, but then come back and see how, how's this working? Uh, one thing that we take uh, to heart is the, the test is the exercise, the exercise is the test. And so I remember personally at Chain Reaction in Arizona, I was having some shoulder stuff and we went through the thoracic spine in extension and rotation. And we were doing some extension rotation motions uh, specific to the spine and I was like, wow, my shoulder's feeling great. And really kind of coming back and saying, how did that thoracic spine in two planes of motion affect how my shoulder moves in all three planes of motion? Mm -hmm. And so, that was kind of a game changer for me because I got to experience it firsthand and now taking maybe some of my individual manual techniques where maybe I'm uh, just releasing uh, the subscapularis or the, the lat or a singular muscle and saying, how through functional manual reaction can I move several muscles to create a movement at one area that's also going to improve my movement at another area. So thoracic spine motion just inherently increased my shoulder motion and I didn't touch my shoulder mm -hmm. and it feels better. Like let's get more of that. And I think that is one of the pearls of gift is it just shifts uh, your perspective and gets your your eyes looking at different things and your hands touching things that affect other parts of your body. That's a, that's a huge pearl. Um, you know, just the thoracic spine in general um, and just the, the way that it can wreak havoc on the rest of the body, you know, looking at the, the shoulders or looking at the low back, looking at the neck. You know, sometimes people say, well, it's not my mid-back that's hurting, it's this part. And the thoracic spine's kind of giggling in kind of a, a weird way saying, I'm the one causing it. And uh, that big pearl of saying, just looking at thoracic spine function, and you, you coupled the extension with rotation, and even factoring in the troupling of, of lateral flexion as well, that allowing the thoracic spine to go, to, to go through different combinations of motions really can show us as professionals where our limitations are 
And if the thoracic spine's not able to go through a lot of those motions, other parts of the body are going to be abnormally stressed. So that pearl of wisdom was huge in conjunction with what you already said about the plantar fasciitis. So I think, uh, at least for me, it's a good reiteration uh, of what we need to be looking at from a global movement standpoint, but also understanding that the big rocks of the body of that thoracic spine, the hips, the feet, many times can be the our first go-tos as movement professionals to see how well are those parts moving and seeing if we can somehow understand the connection of that part with maybe a part that's hurting, such as the knee, the low back, the shoulder. So I appreciate you sharing that. Um, you know, we get excited about the chain reaction of the body, understanding that it's exactly what happens and the more we can understand um, how it happens the more we can understand how we can you know prevent some injuries rehab injuries better and enhance our overall global performance so um, you know real quick here too I know we talked a, a decent amount about experience momentum up front but I definitely want to give you the floor to continue to brag upon your company and brag upon the people uh, but tell us more about Experience Momentum, and if our listeners are interested in learning more, where can they go to find more information on Experience Momentum? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, check us out uh, online, experiencemomentum.com. We also have a Facebook and Instagram page, Experience Momentum. And, yeah, if you're listening out there, if I or we can be a resource, uh, please feel free to reach out to us. If you're in the area, we'd love to... Uh, show you around at either our Seattle or North Seattle locations. Um, but yeah, we're, we're, we're a functional wellness center. We're here to bridge the gap of, uh, the, the health of our body and yes, creating a life that inspires you, but also really trying to redefine what's possible. And I think in our world today, um, how do we, how do we invoke positive change? And I think this is something that we are trying to, uh, to work on. As a company, we became a B Corp company this past year, which we're super excited about. And our team is behind it 100%. And just that, hey, we're here to help people. And if we can use business as good to help our environment, uh, to help social uh, issues, like we're we're gonna do that. We're gonna figure out how we can help make this world a better place. And I just feel blessed that experience momentum that our team it just they just have huge hearts. Mm -hmm. They want to leave a positive impact on this planet and we get to do that through helping people, but they're taking it a step further and they're saying, Hey, how can we help this planet? How can we bridge the gap of our personal health to the health of the planet? How can we be uh open and welcoming to all and uh, just bring more love to this planet and sounds a little, you know, cliche or something, but I, I think we need more of that focus and our team is great about that. So how can we quote unquote experience momentum in life for all of us? And that's, that's what we're about. And uh, yeah, I just super appreciate you, Doug, for being a part of this journey, like the gift uh, program and the Gray Institute has a tremendous impact on the foundation of this company, and I'm just so grateful to you and and all of your help over the years. So, well, thank we you have, to you. appreciate those kind words, but um, you know, just with experience, momentum, you know, attitude and action definitely are reflected by leadership, and the leadership that you and Kelly have provided is uh, top notch and second to none, and I that's why. 
I know so many uh, professionals migrate towards experience momentum and want to uh, assist in what you're doing. And so creating a life that inspires people, uh, experience momentum continues to do that and so much more, but you've been an inspiration, a great institute as well. And I just want to commend you for that and let you know how much we respect and admire you and want to continue to support you uh, and uh, in your endeavors as well. And I really uh, appreciate you just taking the time. I know it's early over there in, uh, in Seattle. Uh, it's not as early over here in uh, Michigan, uh, but just taking the time to chit chat with me and allowing these listeners to just hear your heart and hear your drive. And it's something that we uh, fully respect and admire and appreciate. So on behalf of Gray Institute, on behalf of our listeners, Shannon, just thank you so much for your time. Oh, absolutely, Doug. And uh, yes, thank you and uh, have a good week and I hope everyone is rocking out there. Uh, you do the same, my friend. Thanks so much. Our second question, again, as indicated, comes from our Daily Double, obviously from Brian Rafool, a chiropractor, uh, that sent me two great questions. And uh, I, I would like to just go right to this question because it takes a little uh, of my time to, I think, explain at least my thoughts and ideas on this. Uh, but again, I, I got a sneaking suspicion that Brian already knows the answer uh, because he, he teed up the question beautifully. And so the question goes like this. Are postural faults, and again, I know he knows postural faults are not posture itself, it's movement faults, postural faults, how we move in our path of least resistance, how we react, what postural is, posture really is kind of what happens in our transformational zones. I added all that. So he says, are postural faults related to plane of motion exaggerations or losses? Does the annulus being torn or a pars fracture or degenerative spondylolisthesis relate consistently with faults in a plane of motion? Well, uh, if you follow the Gray Institute any length of time, you kind of know we're licking our chops on this one uh, because we believe that the a lot of things as far as faulty movement, postural faults, faulty movement, um, leads to compensations and ultimately leads to abnormal compensations that ultimately leads to symptoms um, such as a torn annulus and such as a pars articularis fracture and such as a spondylolisthesis. Um, and so with this question, we're going to step back and say, well, what's the, what's the real question here? And the question is, do you find different patterns or different faults in a certain plane of motion that potentially could contribute to these more than maybe the other two planes of motion. And we're going to say, as we normally would, yes and no. But we're going to say a big emphatic yes uh, before we say the yes and no. So, again, I hate to, as an old guy, keep talking about back in, my, back in the day, but now that I'm, a, I'm, in, I'm in Medicare, I'm allowed to say back in the day when we were taught how to protect somebody with low back pain, and somebody who has some evidence of discal involvement and neurological involvement, um, that we would uh, try to say, well, we wonder what caused it. And we'd always see this rotational thing going on. So intuitively, we said, you know what? We got to stop this person from rotating. We got to take away the transverse plane. We can't let them twist and shout anymore. So the rule was any lateral flexion with rotation is a no-no. 
In fact, the rule went even further than that where they started teaching this thing called lumbar stabilization, which there's a lot of definitions to it, but ultimately, because we were traumatizing the lumbar spine and specifically the discs, we would say, okay, we're gonna train you to try to move, to try to walk, to try to lift, to try to enjoy whatever you're trying to enjoy, but I don't want this abnormal motion, especially this rotation happening at your lumbar spine. And so we would do these weird things. We would actually, forms of planking on the ground where we teach them how to stabilize it, have the patient, the client, the athlete, uh, put their back against the wall and contract their abdominal muscles and flatten out their back and kind of walk away. They almost look like Urkel and try to say, now hold that, because if you hold that, you're not gonna get these abnormal transverse plane shearing forces through your back. And just even back then, if we poo-beared it, in other words, when we poo-bear things, we become a bear of very little brain, but a big heart. But a bear of very little brain would say, boy, I don't think I wanna try to play in the forest with my friends trying to walk like that or hold like that. In fact, they would probably say, I can't do much. If you don't let me rotate, in fact, I think you took my lifeblood away from me, Pooh Bear would say. But then everybody would say, but, but, but we really think that rotation is the cause of the annulus tear in this case, and we'll talk in a little bit about the pars articularis fracture. So here's what I think we all meant to say. Our heart was in the right spot, it's kind of like the fallacy of trying to keep the knee in a neutralized position. And if I can train it to stay there, that it'll never get into exaggerated position where I'm gonna tear my ACL. Again, our heart was in the right spot, but um, we weren't thinking clearly. We weren't asking the real questions as to what am I really trying to accomplish here? And if I did keep the knee in neutral, if I can keep my lumbar spine in neutral, how do I have to do that? Well, you have to literally splint for the knee, the hip and the foot, because that's what controls the knee. So you take away the loading and the unloading mechanism from the hip and the foot. You take away the proprioceptive stimulus. In reality, if we did try to keep the knee in neutral, we now know kind of proprioceptively and what we know about human movement that we might've been creating an environment to put the knee more at risk. Again, we didn't do that on purpose. Our heart was in the right spot. We thought we were protecting it. The same thing with the low back. We thought we were protecting it by saying, and don't do that. The real question should have been, do we want a lot of real or a lot of relative transverse plane motion combined with sagittal and frontal plane motion in the lumbar spine? Here's what we mean by that. If I look at L5 and I look at the sacrum, or if I look at L4 on L5 and L5 on S1, which is the sacrum, we can see by the angle of the facets, very, very, very little rotational movement is available. Depends on what articles you read, up to one to two degrees. Uh, but if you go through the whole lumbar spine, a couple degrees at L4, L5, L5, S1, L3, L4, all that. so you got about 10 degrees of motion of kind of what we call transverse plane torque happening. And that motion is what's called relative motion. In other words, if both bones are moving relatively, how much motion is in the transverse plane? The, and so if we saw a lot of relative motion going on, which with the eyeball is impossible to see, I believe, then we kind of know we got, we're gonna have a breakdown occur and therefore we panicked and said, we want all of this relative motion 
stopped. And what we did, instead of stopping the relative motion, we stopped the real motion. Here's what that means. We tried to stop the pelvis from rotating because we didn't want real rotation of the sacrum. We tried to stop the trunk from rotating because we didn't want real rotation of L4 and L5. That was our kiss of death. Again, we didn't understand our biomechanics back then. And so we thought, wow, this motion of walking or throwing or swinging or dancing or whatever they want to do, we see this pelvis rotating, we see this trunk rotating, we go, oh my goodness, all that rotation is creating rotation in your low back and therefore we got to get rid of that by taking away all of the real motion. The real answer is no, we want to facilitate more real motion in order that it decreases the relative motion. So just as simple as something as easy as walking, if I can walk and the motion of the transverse plane comes from, through my hips and the motion in the opposite direction, the transverse plane comes from my thoracic spine, relatively speaking, very little transverse plane torque is going to be appreciated by the disc or by the facets or by the segments. However, if I take away just a little bit of the sagittal frontal plane and ultimately the transverse plane of the hip, and just a little bit of the sagittal frontal transverse plane of the thoracic spine, and now I walk, guess what? That, I still am gonna walk. I'm still gonna go through space in the transverse plane, but instead of having the motion coming from the hips and the thoracic spine, now the motion, relatively speaking, comes from the lumbar spine. In other words, more relative motion. So instead of having kind of things nicely in sync, and the lumbar spine looking down at the hips and feet going, man, I really appreciate what you're doing because you're, you're actually doing most of the rotation and controlling it. And having the lumbar spine look to the thoracic spine, wow, I really appreciate what you're doing because you're actually absorbing all the transverse plane motion here. So relatively, I don't have to have that much motion. Instead of that, we thought, well, goodness, if we limit all of the real motion, that'll take away the relative motion. Here's what happened. When we took away the real motion through the pelvis and the femurs and the tibias and the feet and the thoracic spine and the neck and the shoulders, we now created more relative motion in the lumbar spine. So it's like, wait a minute, I thought the whole goal was to get rid of the relative rotation. Yeah, it was, but how we were trained to teach people lumbar stabilization, and in fact, just like with the knee keeping it neutral, it did the opposite it caused more harm. Now, I know I didn't want to hear that back in the day because that's what I'd just been doing. And so somebody's now telling me, wait a minute, are you telling me if I did that kind of traditional preventative program by trying to keep the knee in neutral that in fact I might have been causing the opportunity for not good control of the knee via the hip and the foot and the trunk, and therefore I put my patients and clients at risk, and I might have created environments that actually made it worse. Yep, I had to, I had to realize that. Same thing with the lumbar spine. Back in the 70s when we argued, no, 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 no. We don't want to limit rotation. We want to enhance rotation. We want to enhance real rotation above the lumbar spine and below the lumbar spine, so the relative rotation at the lumbar spine gets a lot less, and the 
beating up of the disc becomes a lot less. Now, so the, the question was, do you see motions of exaggerations or losses in planes of motion? The answer is yes. It's always a combination, as you know, it's 3D, but especially with the lumbar spine, the motion that we see exaggerated, relatively so, in the lumbar spine, but, but relatively not as proficient and as efficient that has been lost, we see it in the hips and in the thoracic spine. And therefore, it limits the real rotation that we need. So yes, we do. Now, take that a step further, or maybe even a step back. If you really take a look at a lumbar spine, and my grandkids are great uh, at uh, putting together these expensive pieces of plastic um, and, and, and really realize kind of how joints are put together and all of a sudden it turns into this magic, you know, castle or it turns into this transformer, or it turns into, it's like amazing um, that I can remember giving my grandson, uh, who at the time was about eight, the lumbar spine that hooked onto the pelvis, that hooked onto the femur. And I had him look at the junction between L5 and S1. And I told him, I, this is one of his kind of pieces of plastic that comes together. This joint is that particular thing. And instead of this box of plastic that makes this really cool car or something, I want you to pretend that the plastic has already been made and I want you to look at this, analyze it in less than one second. I want you to fracture the plastic, break the plastic so I can get a wiggle here. So I showed him there was no relative wiggle at L5S1. He quickly looked at it and said, wow, this is gonna be you know, one of the easiest things my grandpa had me do. He took it and he twisted the pelvis and obviously the sacrum one way, and he twisted the upper lumbar spine and the lower thoracic spine the other way, and he said to me, snap, snap. So he twisted it one way, and so the one piece of plastic, the pars articularis, on the right-hand side of the lumbar spine fractured, and then he twisted it the other way, and the left one fractured. And I looked and I said, that's brilliant. And it kind of confirmed what we've thought now for about 40 years, that pars articularis is not uh, something that you're born with, it's something you acquire. And when we have seen thousands of patients with this deformity that sometimes turns into a spondylolisthesis, by definition, the pars articularis fracture, the fracture of the facet joints, precedes the slipping of L5 on S1, and therefore we have that instability there, We've seen 100% of the time, not 95% of the time, but 100% of the time, deficits in the transverse plane at the hips, at the feet, and or the thoracic spine, neck and shoulders. So again, we're talking about the lumbar spine. Notice I didn't say anything about the lumbar spine because if we have limitation of motion at the hips and the thoracic spine, that's like trying to do something and have my grandson grab this and basically go snap, snap. This is the force, this is the very gentle motion I'm gonna to create to facilitate this reaction. Interestingly enough, I asked him, what about this motion? And I made it go forward and backward in the sagittal plane. He goes, well, no, there's, 
there's motion there, so you're not going to fracture the plastic there. You're not going to fracture that, whatever you call it, Grandpa, there. Oh, how about this side side motion? He goes, no. If you have freedom of motion, you're not going to have the stress that would build up the fracture to the thing that creates stability to the motion. And again, Pooh Bear wins because Pooh Bear obviously logically looks at that and goes, wow. Again, in our day, we would see an oblique x-ray and we'd see evidence of the pars articularis because the, the fracture line would be like the collar of a Scotty dog. And I love dogs, so as soon as somebody told me on the x-ray there's a Scotty dog, I got all excited and they said, now if it has a collar, that's not good because that darkness is the pars articular fracture. But then they said if you saw L5 slide down S1 and they show the lateral x-ray, then we have to stop that. So the strategy back then is let's tilt the the, the sacrum or the slide up and do that kind of that posture pelvic tilt. And again, watching us try to do that was comical because first of all, the body was not designed to do that. And second of all, that was not the cause of L5 sliding down on S1. The cause was abnormal relative transverse plane motion at that segment that fractured the pars articularis that now creates the instability. Now, we're now where additional rotation creates a sliding of L5 down the slide of S1. I don't know if you can remember, but uh, when I was a little kid, uh, and of course you probably can't remember when I was a little kid, but if you can remember when you were a little kid, going down a slide, if the slide was sticky, in other words, if my butt was sticky or the slide was kind of sticky, we'd put sand on the slide. But before that, we'd want to get down the slide. What would we do? We went herky-jerky back on the sagittal plane. We would twist. You can almost feel yourself on top of the slides twisting right now to get you to slide down. That's exactly what happens to L5 on S1 or L4 on L5 on what we call a very traditional spondylolisthesis. Now, again, with the transverse plane motion, the abnormal stress can be enhanced by obviously extension, which we see a lot with gymnasts. Uh, it can be enhanced with a preferred lateral flexion uh, of the lumbar spine as well. But the deficit you're gonna see is gonna be a deficit in the thoracic spine, a little bit up in the shoulders and neck, and definitely in the hips. In the transverse plane, obviously if you have deficit in the transverse plane, you're gonna have that typical deficit of the anterior hip and the sagittal and of the hips in the frontal and you'll also see deficits in the subtalar joint in the transverse plane and in the frontal plane. So again, incredible question with a very leading uh, addition to the question, and the answer is yes. That's why we do 3D maps the way we do, because we're really asking ourselves, if we can break the body down into the anterior and posterior chain in the sagittal plane, the right lateral and the left lateral and the frontal and the right rotational, left rotational and the transverse, we're gonna find out what planes of motion either exaggerated or lost. Too much mobility, not enough stability, or too much stability, not enough mobility that are lost that are contributing to the symptoms that our patients, our clients, and our athletes have. And so we actually have taken advantage of the answer to the question is yes, you'll see patterns of the lacking of certain planes of motion at certain joints that are causes of problems in other parts of the body. And in this case, the two great examples, the torn annulus and obviously the degenerative spondylolisthesis. So again, hopefully that wasn't too confusing. The 
fun part about that is, is that we have a system, 3D Maps, where we can quickly identify in the transverse plane and then even combine transverse with frontal and sagittal at what joint, the hips or the thoracic spine or the shoulders or the feet, instantly what we're gonna go after. We restore that normalized motion. The relative motion now at the lumbar spine is reduced significantly. Therefore, the relative stress in the transverse plane to the disc and to the pars articularis um, automatically goes way down, symptoms go away, and all of a sudden everybody's happy. But strangely enough, we treated the low back by not treating the low back. I remember back in the early 80s, I got up in front of a group of people that were really into lumbar stabilization and really anti-anything rotation. And I took the pelvis in L5 and I rotated as fast as I could in the transverse plane. I said, this is my goal for every patient. And every, everybody kind of gasped. They're like, are you crazy? No, but I want this motion to occur at the hips, the knees, and the feet. I want it to occur at the thoracic spine, cervical spine, and shoulders. So relatively speaking, the lumbar spine doesn't have to do that. If you try to keep it in neutral, you're actually heart's in the right spot, but nothing happens in neutral. Next time you want to get in your car and go somewhere, put it in neutral, hit the gas, nothing's going to, go, nothing's going to happen. We always want to go through neutral, through subtalar neutral, through knee neutral, through lumbar neutral, through thoracic neutral, but we never want to teach somebody to splint or stay in neutral to try to protect them because then we take away what has to happen above and below. We take away their lifeblood in order for them to function. I just hope you're having a great day. I hope, uh, again, you continue to enjoy not only our podcast, but other people's podcasts. There's just a lot of great information out there. And at the end of the day, we got to ask ourselves, are we working as hard as we possibly can to enhance our abilities in order that when somebody kindly comes into our midst that has a physical pain and that ultimately has needs mentally as well as spiritually, that we can create the right environment to facilitate the right chain reaction using authentic drivers that are personalized for that person, treating the cause as well as the compensations and the symptoms in order to do our best. And obviously, if you're listening to this podcast, you're trying to do your best. So we're very proud of you, we respect you, and we would like to end by saying we appreciate you. Have a great day. This is Barb. Thanks for joining us here on the Great Institute Podcast. At Gray Institute, our goal is to do one thing the best we can, and that is to help you become the go-to movement professional. If you have questions for future podcasts or questions about anything Gray Institute offers, including education, live or online specializations, or mentorship, please email us at info at grayinstitute.com. If we use your question on air, we'll send you some cool stuff. Be sure to look for our next podcast coming soon. Have a great day.